If this is your first time, um, you're coming to us on a kind of a unique Sunday. Uh, we've been in, uh, in a study on the book of Mark for a minute. Um, but we're taking a, taking a little bit of a hiatus today. And uh, we're going to be talking about something that's actually very, very important. Um, we're going to look at how does God in his scriptures engage and view the role of role of women in the church by looking at how does he engage and view the role of men and women in marriage and particularly then in, in the role in the church. And so today we're going to talk about something that's not new, right? This is not a, this is not a new discussion for the church, let's just say that. But it is one that over the years has been wildly controversial and has certainly been explosive at times and has divided people and, and churches and sometimes families. Um, so this is not a small thing to talk about, but it's really deeply important. And why are we talking about it right now? I mean, honestly, we're talking about it right now for a couple of reasons. One, we, we have a declaration about where we stand here in our statement of faith, so that's not a new thing. But, but we've never really taken the time to, to articulate clearly, not just, not just where do we stand as a church, but why. Like, how do we get there according to the Scripture? How do we land in the places that we land? And, and on top of that, there's been a kind of a renewed emphasis and questions and really great questions from many women going, like, how can we be more influential in the church? And I love that question. And so it felt like it was time it felt like we were overdue, candidly, and it felt like it was a way in which we can, as we prepare to move into a new season of ministry, to talk about something that really, really matters at the foundation of our faith. So, women in ministry. I want to start a kind of an introduction section here by, by talking about a few things. Um, in particular, just I want, I want to emphasize the fact that this is something, this is a topic, this is an area of Scripture that is not simple. This is not a simple conversation. There is um, a strong likelihood that you're going to feel one of two things during the midst of the sermon as I'm talking. You're going to feel that either like I'm like recounting the plot of the Stepford Wives, <laughs> or you're like you've gone full liberal, Matt. Like likely some of your someone's going to feel all of those things, or maybe a different portions of that, because because the reality is everybody is on a spectrum in this conversation. Or you may not even realize that you're on a spectrum. Just wait. Just wait. You will find yourself. And so, to that end, I want to say this is not a simple topic because the interpretational difficulties of the passages that deal with this area of ministry are not simple. There are interpretational difficulties. That means it's not like clear-cut, super simple like, you know, are you the son of God? I'm the son of God. I think he's the son of God. That's pretty straightforward. That's not what we're dealing with here. So there's a spectrum at play here. And so I just want to kind of throw up a picture, kind of a little graphic that's going to help us maybe at least get a context of where the spectrum is and where you and I and we are going to be landing. At least maybe you can pinpoint yourself. I don't have a ton of time, so I can't run into too much on the feminism and on the, the patriarchy. I would say both of those, to summarize, are overemphasis in one direction or another. And of course, there's some of it that's completely outside of, you know, misogyny over here and, you know, gender, gender fluidity and everything. There's no gender. There's no nothing. That would be outside of biblical Christianity completely. But outside of that, we're just, we're dealing with an overemphasis that says on one side, we don't trust men. On the other side, we don't trust women. That's a terrible simplification, but it's all I got time for. <laughs> feminism, Christian feminism, Christian patriarchy. Egalitarianism, though, um, 
and something I'd like to spend just a minute trying to articulate and clarify. Egalitarians, and by the way, there's a bunch of you in this, there's a few of you in this room, a bunch of you, I don't know, there's some of you in this room, I know it, talk to you, um, and, and this is really pivotal because we're in the center now, right? we're kind of in the middle area as it relates to this particular topic. Egalitarians believe the Bible. They believe that the articulation of their points and why they land where they land comes from the scripture, and so they do Bible work. You know what? Like, I'm on board with that. Like, we'll do the work with the Bible, right? So, so Nicolaitan says, you know what? Like, the family is, is, is important, but on top of that, there's, a, there's just this clear sense of saying, okay, uh, m- marriage and the roles that are taking place in marriage and in the church are primarily centered around the issue of unity. So egalitarians would say unity is primary. That's the most important thing. And so there's no roles, and an egalitarian understanding, there's no roles distinction. Any role is just, it can, it can move around. Anyone can play any role. And so as long as there's, there could be roles, but, and there needs to be qualifications for those roles, but, but no one is outside the opportunity of being able to be a part of any role. Okay, and that would be an egalitarian understanding, and they draw that from a clear exegete of the scriptures in a particular direction, okay? Very, very important. Also, egalitarians are not suspicious of, of male leadership in a, in a way that feminism can be really suspicious. Anything that has male leadership in it must be some form of misogyny. Or that's, not where they, that's not where an egalitarian would land. They would just say, um, as long as the role is available for anyone who's also qualified, then that would be totally fine. So that would be the understanding of of egalitarianism. And as a church, we land in the complementarian bubble. Now, I say bubble because even within that, there's a spectrum. There's, even within that, on the elder board, there's a spectrum. So that's the bubble, that's the, that's the circle that we land in as a church. Um, and I'm just going to use two words for you to kind of hang on to for the, for the majority, because we're going to be talking about, obviously, this particular dynamic for the majority of this sermon, but uh, is, is different and dependent, Okay. Complementarianism would say different or distinct and dependent. Not but dependent or dependent, no, no. And dependent. Distinct and dependent. Different and yet dependent. So I just want to say, first of all, everyone lands somewhere. And what's really pivotal is why you land where you land. And what I mean by that in particular is what is the authority, what is the source, what is, what is the thing that's informing you as to why you land where you land is, is pivotal. It's actually, it's actually more important than where you land. Okay? Everyone lands somewhere. Also, this is not about... This is not an area of primary doctrine, okay? So it's not simple, no doubt. It's also not an area of primary doctrine. This is not about Christology. This is not, is Jesus God? Is there a trinity? This is not primary doctrine, which means we can disagree here. And we do disagree here. Some, some of my close friends, some of the people that I was, I've, been, I've done ministry with, the people's sermons I listen to and their books I read, they land on the egalitarian side, which is not where I land. And I love them, I respect them, I enjoy the conversations we get to have, I respect their marriages, I respect their, their ministries. I don't think, I think they're wrong, but you know what, it's okay, they think I'm wrong. And so when we have conversations, there's, there's both humility and there's charity, which is my invitation to you. As in this conversation, because it is a secondary theological matter, that we would be people of humility and charity towards one another, but that we would be people of conviction, because... Just because, and I heard a, this really great podcast, I'm actually going to put this up as part of the resource, a really great podcast, uh, you get an egalitarian um, woman who's a priest, she talked, to, and, she, and she made this quote that basically said, um, the best you can be at on this topic is 80%. And I was like, yeah, you're right. 
You, you, I mean, you can be convinced with your 80, and you can be convinced with your, but you can only get to about 80. No one's at 100% on this. You just, you can't be. There are too many challenges in any direction you go. You just can't do it. So my invitation is for those of you like, whatever, I can prove it. I would say that maybe not. A little humility and a lot of charity towards one another. This is not something to divide over. This is not something, if, if you, if you're in the middle, we're like getting to the end of the sermon, and you're like, we're done, Matt. I didn't even know this is where you were landing. We're out of here. Like, don't leave. This is not, this is not worth leaving over. Now, if you need to leave, you know, please, I'm not going to force you to stay or anything like that, but, but I just want to say, like, there is an opportunity for us to love one another on this matter in this area in a way that actually, to me, is the beauty of the church. Not where we all agree about everything, but we actually learn to love one another and wrestle hard about the things of God according to the scriptures. Like, that's a witness to the world we want to give, right? So, as we move forward, humility, and charity. But the third thing is um, that this is not, so it's not a simple matter, and it's definitely not a primary doctrine area. Um, But it does matter. It does matter. Um, But it's also not an unemotional topic. This is is a topic that it, it can be freighted or like filled with a whole ton of maybe unwanted or undesired emotions because there's a lot of pain in here for people. There's a lot of discouragement, a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of, a lot of maybe cynicism or resignation because of the kinds of experiences, ladies in particular, that you have experienced within the church. So this is not net neutral here. One of the things that God led me to um, was to spend some time in the last couple of months in preparing for this. Um, certain sermons take, you know, like, 15 hours, this one took more. Um, (laughs) Um, I I had some listening meetings. God led me to just like, hey, what would it look like to spend some time just listening? Because you know, it turns out you're a dude. And I, my wife is amazing and she is very good at helping me see things that I would never be able to see. But like, I thought, what would it be like to spend some time listening to a variety of different women from different, from different (laughs) backgrounds, different ages, different demographics. And uh, so I did a couple listening meetings, including with my, kind of my, team member, the women that are my team, and, and, and the women deacons, and, and uh, it was a really humbling experience. I, uh, I wish, frankly, gentlemen, I wish I could have taken you all in there as little flies on the wall, um, but it was, uh, I was, I was surprised, and I was surprised not in the sense, like, I've been a pastor for, for a while, and so it's like I've heard some rough things, but I, I just, I was surprised by the, by the amount and by the difference, and yet the consistency of certain kinds of stories, and, uh, it was enlightening and it was sobering um, to hear some of those things, and I didn't get to hear that many. I mean, maybe 25, 30 over, over the course of the last couple months. So, I, you know, there's many ladies in here that I don't, I don't know what that's looked like for you. But I do want to say this, is that uh, one thing that's true and certain is that um, in, in, the, in the history of the church, no doubt about it, but even in the past couple of decades of evangelical leadership and churches, that male, male leaders and pastors and elders like, have, have failed you. Like, that, that became crystal clear. And, and as I was listening, I, I had some key moments from my own heart and life going like, wow, I've actually participated, contributed in ways I didn't even realize I was doing. And so, um, at, times I, I, at times we failed to value you, to, to honor you. We failed to to treat your voice like it had the same weight as men in the room. 
We fail to listen, to, to pursue you for discernment or wisdom, ladies. We fail to, uh, sometimes when we have listened, we fail to believe you. We distrusted you, maybe felt like you were too emotional or something. And Some of us have failed to protect you for an unhealthy marriage or abusive marriage, justifying things. Let me realize that we failed to challenge, um, challenge and equip you. As I've done a lot of reading, especially on this topic, I've realized that there's a real gap in the church's call to say, women, you must be robust women of biblical and theological backbone and grounding. You must, be ris- you must rise up. The church has been like, no, it's okay, the men will do that. Not always. But we've also failed to champion and to give opportunities for your gifts to be expressed and to have impact, particular leadership and influence gifts, the kind of ones that would, that would have effect on a teaching environment or a, a leading teams. Um, we've communicated to you that being a good Christian woman is to be nice and polite and maybe quiet. Actually, a martyr will work. And then we've appreciated a certain set of your gifts, like, you know, mercy and helps, which are beautiful, gives hospitality. And we've ignored the others. We failed to raise up and to empower and to promote mature women who are going to be able to come alongside other women in a way that's visible and public and strong and endorsed in a way so that you know that spiritual formation, spiritual, uh, spiritual um, pastoral development and could come to you from women. It's just pastors, and most of them are dudes, if not all of them. And probably what was most sad to me was um, that we've failed by treating you as though you're a threat to men, that you're that your sexuality is dangerous and that it's your job, your fault to make sure that you don't, that nothing, nothing happens and that that dude doesn't do something and it would be your fault anyway. And so you're trying to figure out, am I being too cold? Am I being too, am I, am I flirty? If, I'm, if you're a single woman, it's like 10 times worse. You're a threat to everyone, married women and married men. Wow. We've not helped here. We've not served you well. And so I just, on the onset of this sermon, and we're going to step into all the specifics, but as a pastor and as an elder, as a man, as a brother of yours in Christ, I just want to acknowledge and own the reality of the ways in which we've, we've failed to love you and lead you well. As Maybe as a, as a representative for all your former pastors and, and elders, and to, to just ask for your forgiveness for the ways in which you've been treated inconsistently with the way Christ would be treating you as his bride. Because you're worthy of that. In the midst of that, I am also really, really grateful for some of the other stories I've gotten to hear from women in our midst that have had really beautiful pictures of the church being a place of protection and pursuit where they've been encouraged with their gifts and championed in their, in their skills and talents. And 
and that that's happened at some of their other churches and that's happened here some, and I want more of that, a lot more of that. And so, that's the, that's the basis. Now, where, where, where do we land as a church? Where does RCC land? We're going to look at this in three, three pieces, in personhood, in family, and in church. And we got, we got a lot to go, so buckle up. Let's talk about personhood first. We believe that men and women are co-image bearers of God with each other. We see this in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, let them have dominion over, the, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. When it comes to personhood, we believe that men and women are of equal value, are of equal essence, are an equal in dignity and personhood. They've equally been given the mandate to have dominion over the world. To exercise dominion over creation. But, but there's more. When it comes to personhood, Galatians 3, 27 and 28 say, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So as many of you have received Jesus and put on Jesus, this is what's true. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So not only are men and women equal in value and dignity and personhood and in, and in mandate, but we're also equal in salvation. First Corinthians 12 would say we're equal in spiritual gifts. Everyone's getting spiritual gifts. We're equal in ministry and a call to ministry and an invitation to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. In our statement of faith, the first part here related to creation of humanity, it, it says, we believe, you can read this on our website, we believe that as the capstone to his creation, God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. Adam and Eve belong to the created order that God himself declared to be very good, serving as God's agents to care for, manage, and govern creation, living in holy and devoted fellowship with their maker. Men and women equally made in the image of God enjoy equal access to God by faith in Christ Jesus and are both called to move beyond passive self-indulgence to significant private and public engagement in family, church, and civic life. That's personhood. This is what we believe. Now let's talk about marriage, family, home. It's impossible, by the way, to get to the conversation about women in ministry in the church without going to the roles and the dynamics going on in the home. It's impossible. They're linked all, everywhere in all the scriptures. So we got to go this way. Where do we stand? As I said, different and dependent. Distinct in roles and mutually dependent in function. 
The second part of the statement of faith says, we believe that Adam and Eve were made to complement each other in a one flesh union that establishes the only normative pattern for sexual relations for men and women, such that marriage ultimately serves as a type of the union between Christ and his church. In God's wise purposes, men and women are not simply interchangeable, but rather they complement each other in mutually enriching ways. God ordains that they assume distinctive roles with refl- um, which reflect the loving relationship between Christ and the church, the hus- husband exercising headship in a way that displays the caring, sacrificial love of Christ, and the wife submitting to her husband's husband in ways that model the love of the church for her Lord. We see in the scripture, and it relates to home and marriage and family, this, this pattern of, of equality and difference between men and women, not interchangeably and not just simply unity. And, and here's some of where we see this in Genesis chapter 2. By the way, there's not a conversation about this that doesn't basically live in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and a few other places. But Genesis 2, this is the second account of creation, uh, the, the reaccount, if you want to say. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for ma- that man should be alone. See, there, there, was, there was deficiency, right? There was a gap. It's not good that man should be alone. He shouldn't be alone. should be all by himself. He needs a helper fit for him. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 20, The man gave, so God, he, man gives names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, Hallelujah. (laughs) Or hubba hubba, just depends on the translation. Um, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, which is counter to how all cultures were doing that. Man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. Not ashamed. I just, you have to always have that last line in there because that is, there is a day. There is a day where there will not be shame anymore. In this passage, we see dependence, right? We see that the, the not good in the midst of creation, that there's an incompleteness, a lack. There's this, there's this gap, and it's in the man, incidentally. The man is gapped, and God meets it, but he doesn't meet it with some kind of gadget or with like a pet zebra. He meets it with one who is like, like but different, not, not an exact mere representation. Adam doesn't see Adam. Adam sees Eve, It's in, this it's in this distinction that we see headship of the husband. Now, let me define headship very importantly. Headship in marriage, we believe, is sacrificial, loving, dying headship towards family, towards wife, and towards, ch- towards children. That the man is the one who doesn't carry the power, he carries the responsibility. 
He is the one who is accountable. He's the one who carries the primary responsibility of seeing those in his home flourish at his own cost most of the time. That's headship. So why do we land here? Well, one of the primary differences, I would say, as you think about an egalitarian understanding and and a complementarian understanding is how we see where the roles happen or or, or don't happen. A complementarian, we understand that we say, from what we see, we believe that the role of headship was in the garden before the fall. If you're on the egalitarian side, they would say that the roles manifest themselves out of the fall, and we'll talk about that in a second, but that, that this is happening before, and we say, no, like before the fall, there's, there's, there's tons of hints of, and I think some really clear evidence for that there was, there was headship, which is, again, what? Sacrificial, loving, dying, right? Not power-mongering, sacrifice. And we see it in a couple places. I'm just going to zoom through a few of these things. First, Adam is made first. So in, 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 a, in an understanding of the first has responsibility and authority over the family for the rest of the Middle East, and actually for most of the current world still as it is. Eve was created as a helper for Adam. And later on, Paul will say, Adam wasn't made for Eve. Eve was made for Adam. And that doesn't mean that like, Eve's job is to make Adam's life perfect and work only for him. That's not it. It's that the mandates come to the man to be the one who provides flourishing for the home. And so her responsibility and role in the family is to participate in that particular flourishing. That's what it's saying. That Adam names Eve, which in and of itself is not the end of the world. It's just other than the fact that the one who names typically has a sense of authority or power authority. And then throughout the scriptures, God talks about humanity as, as man, not as, not as woman. He, he talks about, um, I mean, Paul will talk about this repeatedly, that, that Adam is a representative for the human race. And I don't mean that in a good way. This is not the rep we wanted. It's the rep we got, though we would have been him anyway. But you see in, you see in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, all, in Adam all died. In Romans 5, many died through one man's transgression. So when God thinks about the responsibility for what sin did to humankind, he puts it on the man. But I think one of the most telling, maybe one of the most, I think, fascinating moments is actually what happens immediately after the fall. Because immediately after the fall, right, so Eve is there, the serpent comes, says, you know, God didn't really say, you should eat. So she eats, she gives it to Adam, who I don't know, was picking his nose, I don't know what he was doing. Not doing well, let's say that. And so he eats and they fall. And, and what's, when God comes to them, who does he ask for? He asks for Adam. Adam. What is this that you have done? Not Eve, woman, what the heck? No, Adam, what is this that you have done? There's an accountability on Adam for the spiritual climate of his home that existed before the fall and manifested itself in the reality of the fall before sin was on the radar. God holds Adam responsible which, as a moment aside, brothers, like, look at me. Do you understand the magnitude and gravity of what that means? That you are, you are primarily responsible, not only responsible, you don't have to make it all happen. I'm not saying that. You are, you are primarily responsible for the spiritual climate and flourishing of the people that are in your home. That is a mandate. That is a, that is a responsibility that God has given you and not to be held lightly, not to be weighed lightly. 
What it means is you got to become the kind of men that are robust in order to shoulder the magnitude of that responsibility and weight. Let us become those men. Let us not pretend that through dominating or for, from disappearing that this are ever going to be possible. We must become different kinds of men for that to be possible in us. Now, one of the things, of course, we see is just this shows up again in, in, in Ephesians, right, where, where Paul echoes what we're talking about in the garden by saying, um, um, basically, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So it's just a direct echo. And again, egalitarian friends would say, you know what, there was a bunch of stuff going on in Ephesus at the time. And so what you're really saying is that there should be mutual submission, which at the beginning of chapter 5, it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They would say that's the overall umbrella. The other stuff is actually just kind of a, uh, it's, it's been a bad go in Ephesus. And there's just a misunderstanding culturally about what's taking place. And so that, that there's not really saying that, that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. It's actually not really happening. But the, the clear reading of the scripture seems to say that over and over again. So the men are to be the chief servants. Wayne Grudem says, there is a beauty and a dignity and a rightness in the differentiation in roles within the human family. Husbands dying for their wives and wives choosing with joy and with full participation and engagement to joyfully submit to their husbands. So what we would say is there seems to be a clear picture that wasn't created in Genesis 3 with the fall. It says, you know, that the, the, when, when Eve, when uh, God talks to Eve and says, um, listen, you know, like you're, you're going to have pain in childbearing um, and you're going to want to basically conquer your husband you're gonna, and he's going to rule over you. We see that as a distortion of what was already in place, not as a creation of a new set of roles. If there's a distortion that, that, that a woman's going to try and actually gain control, you know what the guy's going to do? I'm going to crush you. I'm going to try to get control. I'm going to crush you. That's, that's the story. Have you been, those of you who are married, those of you who have been around marriages, right? Who's got the power? How, how, can, how can I get mine? And that's what the flesh looks like. What, what, what Paul's saying in Ephesians is there's a, new, there's a new living reality when it comes to the life of Christ in us. And it looks like men dying. And, and by the way, Ephesians 5 doesn't say women submit and men lead. Okay, if that's what actually how you read Ephesians 5, you're not reading the verse. It says, Women, submit to your husbands in the Lord. Men, husbands, love like Christ. So it's not women submit and men lead. All right, cool. No, it's, it's, women, it's men love, die all the way down. So as we now step into thinking about the church, so if, this is, if this, we see this pattern of, of headship in the home, then what does it look like and mean in the church? Is there headship in the church or is it just in the home? Well, I think one of the things that's really important to talk about is that, there's, that the primary relationship within the church is one of, of siblings. When God describes what the church is supposed to look like as brothers and sisters, it's, it's a unique kind of family, a, a special kind of family that manifests in those kinds of caring, protective, loving mutuality of siblings. All the one another's of the New Testament point to that kind of relating. So just to be clear, there are no second-class citizens in the church. We are family. We're siblings. That's the foundational, fundamental relationship that we operate out of, which is why when Joel's giving you a benediction or whatever, he's like brothers and sisters and friends. Like He's calling us what we are, siblings, which is the primary relationship that we all share with one another. 
But, but in the Bible, we don't just see, uh, we don't just see mothers and wives, right? There's, there's, there's an entire picture of ministry and engaging in life, culture, civic, judge, and, and we see it all over the place. We see it in the Old Testament, right, with, with examples like Miriam, Moses' sister, who, who's both a leader and a prophetess. You see, like Deborah, in, as, in the worst time in Ju- Israel's past, I mean, one of the terrible times in the midst of, uh, of the book of the, the book of Judges, and Deborah is a judge. She's, she's judging Israel, and she's pretty good at it. You see, Huldah, in the time of Josiah, when the kingdom is just falling apart, and they find these scrolls, and they're like, what do we do with these scrolls? And they take them to Huldah, and she takes them, and she's like, let me tell you what these mean. Let me tell you the implications of what they look like. She was a scholar, someone who knew the Lord and knew his word. And, of course, you have Esther, who as a queen is going to take her position as queen in order to potentially die for her people. And so, so you, have, you have in this Old Testament these pictures of women being involved in the transformative work of the kingdom of God. And of course, in Jesus' ministry, you see him, and he's flipping the script in major ways on the understanding of how women are to be related to and, and their roles and connection within the kingdom. And I mean, he's got, he's got Mary, um, and Mary and Martha, and he's got Mary sitting at his feet learning, not how it went. Women did not sit with the men with the rabbi's teaching, and sit. that did not happen. And what does Jesus say when Martha's like, can we make her not here? He's like, she's choosing the better thing. His entire ministry is supported by women. I mean, Paul's talking about patrons, right? Um, with, um, with Phoebe being a patron of, of his. But Jesus had women who were basically making his ministry possible by supporting it financially. And they're, they're everywhere. They're, they're connected into almost all the moments that we see. And then you have this key moment where Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and she is the first one that Jesus appears to. The honor to a woman for, in that culture, in that context of what was thought of or what could be true, that she would be the first witness the amount of dignity that Jesus is giving that has just not been given in the past. And of course, you see in Paul's ministry, one of the reasons I had Sarah read this passage, one is because it's just fun, you know, to read a bunch of those names. Um, But the other reason is uh, there's 24, 25 names, 25 people in that little section there. Nine of them are women. Seven of them are named. Uh, By the way, all the ones that they say worked really hard, all women. All women. I think that's freaking awesome. (laughs) They worked really hard, that they were, that they were partners with him. You've got, you got Phoebe here, who's, who we, we, our understanding is that she was a deacon. Uh, she was a deacon that was sent, she had a church in her house. She was sent, she probably carried this letter. It's one of the reasons why he's closing with, he's carrying this letter to Rome from Paul. He's saying, pay her respect. Help her with what she needs. Paul is teamed up with, with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They're making tents. Priscilla's the one, by the way, also. Priscilla and Aquila, if you guys have read your Bibles, Priscilla and Aquila, it's not Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla's the woman. Sorry if you don't know, you know, Greek names. Um, I guess Aquila, right? <laughs> so Priscilla. And, and she says that Priscilla and Aquila took, took Apollos, who was an, apparently an amazing communicator, and they took him aside because he was misunderstanding some of, the, uh, some of how the, the gospel had come. And so they took him aside and they explained, so they explained the truth of the gospel more rightly to him. In their home, they took him in. And so, so you have these pictures of all, all, the, all these women doing all kinds of stuff, partnering in ministry, engaging in the life of the early church. There's just this vitality and energy. What that tells us is that's how it's supposed to be. That's, those, are, those, are, those are narratives that give us a picture of that there's this way of being, that there's partnership and, and there's siblinghood and, and there's co-laboring together. But the question for us is not whether that women can lead or should lead or have influential roles within the church. That's a categoric yes. Absolutely. 
It's, the S, it's, the, it's essential for the flourishing of any church and of our church. It must be. But the question that we have to wrestle with a little bit, because it's always the question, is, is there a way in which God has declared or articulated some kind of a headship? Has he drawn any lines? And again, if you're on the egalitarian side, you'd be like, no, all the lines got undone in, in Christ's work on the cross. So that got all undone. And, and, and by the way, they have scriptural pieces that go with that. When they say no, not, man or, not, um, not male or female out of Galatians 3, they're saying like, that's, a, that's an undoing of the, of, the, of the Genesis narrative. So they're using exegy to say that. We're just going like, that doesn't seem to be the case when, when you look at a few of the other passages that Paul brings up. All I have to say is, Everyone's got challenges in this, right? We said 80%. Everyone's got challenges. I might, I might do a little video to show you a couple of our challenges. Just don't have the time this morning to talk about them. Just hold Junia on your name, in your head. Um, but let me, let me go ahead and just clearly articulate uh, kind of part three of our statement of faith related to the church. We believe that in the ministry of the church, both men and women are encouraged to serve Christ and to be developed to their full potential in the manifold ministries of the people of God. The distinctive leadership role of preaching and eldership within the church given to qualified men is grounded in creation, fall, and redemption and must not be sidelined by appeals to cultural developments. Let me rephrase that. We believe that there is a role of headship in the church that is a sacrificial, loving, elder-pastor role. A chief servant that under the headship of Christ particularly manifests this role of both exercising authority and of preaching the word in the gathered public worship service of the assembled church. This role is particularly manifested in the exercising of authority and of the preaching of the word in the gathered, assembled worship service of the people of God. So why do we land there? Uh, m- multiple reasons. We're going to start with just the pattern, the pattern we see in the church. Though, though Jesus, and this is, again, though Jesus was supported by all these women and had did ministry side by side with them and related to women in a fundamentally different way than any rabbi ever had in the history of the world. When it came for him to choose who he was going to prepare and to be leading the movement of the launch of the church, of this new manifestation of the kingdom, he chose 12 men. And, and, the, and, the, and I know, you'd be like, well, okay, well, here's the thing. The argument is typically, well, that's the cultural norm. He couldn't have done anything that was really kind of pushing the boundaries. It's like, have you read the Gospels? I mean, I just, I, you cannot read the Bible with integrity. You cannot read the Gospels with integrity and be like, Jesus was afraid of like kind of ruffling feathers. He didn't want to flip anything over. It's like, no, Jesus flipped stuff over. Like he undid stuff about the Sabbath. He's undo- I mean, he's undoing all kinds of like deeply seated, like explosive cultural norms and he doesn't touch this one. And so, so, so it just, it's not, the only thing, but it's, but it's a question. When he, when he, and when, the, when the, uh, the apostles replace Judas when he's gone, when there's future appointments, when you look at Peter and Paul and who they're appointing, there's no appointments in those particular seemingly headship roles. And Paul's telling Timothy to appoint, now there's no implication of that. So there's this, there's this question of like, why not? Is it, is it, why not? 
So it's not definitive, it's not the only thing, but it's a, it's a question. But then we have some of the teachings of Paul. So I'm going to move through these somewhat quickly. They are super explosive, so just gird yourself. If you haven't read your epistles in a while, you should. So in the teachings of Paul we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, um, but I want you to understand, okay, so he's talking to this Corinthian church, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of a wife is her husband, not a woman, but a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. We're not going to go into head coverings. We do not have time for any of that. It's a fascinating conversation, but that's not the point. The point of this passage, which again, by the way, the entire point of this passage is, is not about men and women primarily. It's actually about men looking like men and acting like men in the worship context, and women looking like men and acting like women in the worship context. That's what that's about. The entire chapter, that's actually what it's about. So it's not primarily about trying to make a point to this end. But it does say in verse 3 that this idea of headship, right? So in the midst of talking about the congregation, about what's happening in worship, and he's about to talk to them about how to do communion right after this, he talks about headship, about husbands and being the, the head of the wife and and people, and so again, the argument is saying, well, actually, we're talking about, um, I mean, head really just means like source, like because, because Eve was taken out of the side of, she's, he, he was her source, so Adam was the source, so the husband is the source of the wife. Problem is, is like, does that mean that God is the source of Jesus? Because now, now your trinity starts getting a little wacky, right? And so, so there's, there's just challenges within that. And so we would say, no, like headship just means headship. It means responsibility and the authority that comes with that to accomplish the purposes of God. That's for the flourishing of the people that they're responsible for. That's all, that's all it means. But at the same time, if you read your New Testament, it says here in verse 5 that women, when they pray and prophesy, again, this is in the gathered assembly, so it's not silence. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 14, which you don't have time for today, there's some like, wait, are women not allowed to like speak out loud? When everyone's together, we're going to see this in a second as we look at Second Timothy. Women have roles and voices to offer to the gathered people of God. They prophesy and they pray. So let's look at First Timothy 2. Let's just jump to 11, verse 11. Because, you know, let's just jump inwards. Let a woman learn quietly with all submission, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Whew. Right? Man. This just, it can sound like the things I was just talking about that have been done to women that are not good, right? It almost sound that way. That's not what's going on here. Verse 11 says, let a woman learn. No one in Jewish culture and no one in Greco-Roman culture got women to learn. Like that's actually the far more revolutionary concept in these verses than the quietness or, or submissiveness. That Paul would say, no, 
Women must learn. They must be girded up by the truth. They must become robust, significant women of God. And just like their brothers, they are to do so with an attitude, a spirit of submissiveness. Just like Hebrews 13 says that, that everyone is to be in submission to their elders. But who are they supposed to be in submission to? Well, you see here in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain si- quiet, not silent. So a spirit of quietness, of learning. Again, this is not a, the, the, the argument is there's a cultural context here. That's, that's not the, it can't be the argument. You know why? Because of why, what Paul grounds it in. In verse 13, he says, not because in Ephesus there was a temple and all the priestesses were women, and so now that you're trying a new church, all the women are in charge, that's normal, so you're trying to undo that by telling them not to be teaching and having authority. That's the argument, right? That's what's going on in Ephesus, so they had to change that, and so they're saying, hey, listen, women, you need to, you need to not be the ones who are teaching, you need to let men do it also. That's, that's the argument of an egalitarian. And again, solid argument. There's really great historical research that shows that that's absolutely the case of what was going on in Ephesus. Problem is, is Paul's argument doesn't say, and in light of what's going on in Ephesus, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so, so what we believe, and it's not because it's like the most easy, comfortable, it's not because a woman's gullible or that, that she's not good at having power or authority. She's not smart enough. It's because God has designed something within the context of the fabric of his good purposes for his people in the church for there to be headship. Paul roots all of this in the creative narrative, creation narrative. But some are supposed to teach and exercise authority, and so who are those? And I've already shared that with you. I think what's, what's fascinating is so some people are supposed to have exercise authority, right? You're saying, no, don't. But someone is supposed to, and so who is it? Well, right after chapter 2 of First Timothy, uh, Timothy, begins chapter 3 of First Timothy and says, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, he desires a noble task. There is a, dist- we believe there's a distinct leadership role in preaching and leadership within the church that, belongs to qualified men whose job it is to be sacrificial, loving, the first ones to die, the ones to die most, the ones to die deepest for the purpose of the people of God. That's what headship means, and that's what we believe it means when it comes to qualified men, because this role is not supposed to be, it's not for men, it's not for all men, it's for qualified men, only. So, read this great article by um, author and writer um, Amy Gannett. And in it, she says, God's design for headship in the church and home isn't just a command to be obeyed. It is an expression of God's best for his people. She, she goes on to say, like, if we believe the reality of this, this beautiful inter-equality and, and this different, but yet we're for one another, and we're partnering in that, we're siblings and if we believe that all of that system is, is then, then God, is, God loves us. This is a manifestation and a, and a declaration of his love, not of what he's withholding or he's trying to make difficult for us. And that's what I believe to the bottom of my soul. I believe that in a marriage context, that when a man is not doing all the things, not the leader, 
but the one who is responsible and out of his responsibility is dying for his family by sacrificing and loving and becoming a robust, solid man, that then he gives himself for his wife, he gives himself for his kids, and that that gives the best opportunity for the woman to be able to flourish in that context, to be able to come alongside and be something that she couldn't be otherwise because she's helping him be something he could not be otherwise, and we have families that are thriving and flourishing. I believe that in the church when there are, there are men, qualified men, who find themselves taking on the mantle of eldership, who are preaching the word according to the purposes of God, and then are making possible or f- helping men and women flourish in their gifting, that the church prospers and grows, that there is protection and safety, that there's not abuses, that, that things are called what they are, that there's not confusion or disorder, but there's beauty for all. What does this mean for us as a church? Well, we're not going to restrict things that we don't believe the scriptures restrict. We're not going to like use, have the, uh, the slippery slope argument of like, well, if it's gray, let's just go conservative on it to make sure we don't go too far. Like, we're not going to do that. Like, where, where the scriptures don't prohibit things, we're not going to prohibit things. We're not going to go, and then we've pretty much clarified where we feel like there's only lines that exist in the office of elder and the particular roles of exercising authority, which is direction, doctrine, and discipline, and then of preaching the word in the gathered context. And so what this means is that we're going to continue to be a church where, uh, where we want to see and increase and improve the leadership and the, and the visibility and the influence of women and men, but of women in our church. That you're going to see, continue to see women leading worship and leading ministries and leading mission trips organizing environments and, and building formation processes for all of us to walk in and live in and growing, teaching, equipping courses and leading in community groups and as deacons empowering and, and coordinating service teams. As I've mentioned to you already, we're so far over time. There's, like a, there's a group of amazing women, which, which by the way, if you're, if you're in need of one of the things that there's a no doubt a gap in, in the church and in our church, it's there. So just going to call it what it is. Like there is a gap in the, in the ability to do pastoral care, spiritual formation amongst women. Like if you want to talk to a pastor, you got the dudes, right? I mean, if you want to talk to an elder, you got the men. So if you're a woman, there's a gap there. And that, that came up multiple times in my conversation. Of like, who are the women that are, that, are, that are robust and strong that I can trust, that can come to and give me that kind of pastoral care and understanding and deep discipleship that are going to be grounded in the scriptures? Like, who are they, where are they, and how do I find them? It's not really clear. You can call my number, but if you're a woman, that's maybe not the best context, especially depending on what you want to talk about or work through, right? And so one of the things we need to do is we've, we've just begun, but hopefully we're doing a better and better job of being able to say, hey, if, you got, if that's a true reality, if you've got things of spiritual care or formation that you're wanting to be a part of, like, like Donna and Karen, who are deacons to women, who are flipping amazing. They're some of the most formidable people you'll ever meet. Not only that, but they've collected around themselves some really incredible women who have walked with God long enough and who've wrestled with God faithfully enough to be able to know him well enough to be able to walk with other people. And so one of the things that's happened is we've, we've worked on this process of creating a mentoring structure and strategy, and we're launching it here in September, just like in a month. There's going to be a training, and we're going to launch mentoring, and, and, and it's been entirely led, run, developed, thought through, et cetera, developed philosophy, everything by this team of women. And it's amazing. And you know what we're going to do? After we like, we're going to launch it. They're like, we want to launch it with the women. We're not sure about the guys. And so we're going we're gonna to take that and we're going to be like, okay, cool. Now we're all doing it. And in co-partnership and leadership, we're going to do this together. Because that's what it means to be siblings and to serve one another and to, and to lead effectively. 
purposefully. One of the um, functional changes, one of the gaps that's existed that has just been one of those incongruities that we've, you know, kind of like you don't think about it until you go, huh, is, um, and, and we're changing that today, so you know, um, is that women haven't served communion. And so our understanding of the biblical understanding of Scripture, of the roles that, like, we, we believe that women should serve communion. And so from now on, women will be serving communion. But what we want to be very clear about, what I want to be really clear about, is that it as it relates to, to women, as it relates to women, ladies, like we're not going to be, we don't want to be the kind of church, we will not be the kind of church that is going to elevate motherhood above being a businesswoman. We're not going to make you compete against one another. We're not going to say, hey, a married woman and a single woman, yeah, those are, those are no, no, we're not going to compete. Like all of you are needed for the ministry and the life and the vibrancy of this church. And candidly, single women, you have opportunities and means to be able to do things that, according to Paul, is like massive for the kingdom in these kinds of contexts. So come. Give of your gifts. And I don't just mean like, we, we need your gifts of help and, and of hospitality. We, we need those. But we need your gifts of teaching and leadership and organization. We need your, we need your spiritual gifts of, of discernment and wisdom and knowledge. We need you to become the kind of women that are, that are theologically robust and biblically strong in a way that can come shoulder to shoulder with the other men that are in this room to be able to deal with the reality of the world, the, the, the devil in our own flesh. We need to be robust people, and we need to be robust people together as siblings in this context under the headship of Christ through his purposes in elders and pastors. That's our fundamental belief, and we believe that that is when flourishing happens. And so that's, that's us. We need you. Women of Roswell, it's your first time here, like, We'd love to have you come and be a part of what God's doing here. It's a beautiful thing that God does with his people. And we give ourselves to his purposes. One of the great equalizers is this right here, right? Everyone is equal at the foot of, this at the, foot of the cross. And so my invitation, now I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you forward. Joel, I know we're late. I knew we were going to go late. Um, this is the great equalizer, right? That It's not male and female here, right? All of us are naked at the foot of the cross. All of us need both the body and the blood of Christ to remind us that he is our head, and in dying for us as our head, he became our rescue, our redeemer, and our king. So, loved ones, men and women, brothers and sisters, we pray and then come forward and receive the body and blood of Christ for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that, um, that you love you love men and women, that you love husbands and wives, that you love single women and single men, that you have purposes for us, that you're not wasting or squandering or, or confused, but that you've actually given us something to flourish in, and we want to step into that as a community. We want to be courageous, and we want to be, hmm, we want to be alive. And so would you, by your grace, continue to lead us would you empower the gifts that you've given us? You said, you, you say there's a gifts all over this room, all over, the, every single person who has you as their, in their spirit has gifts. We pray that those things would flourish and be built up and that we would have huh, the glory of the Lord through the people of God demonstrated in our midst. We pray this to the praise and glory of your name. As we receive these elements, we receive you. Christ Jesus, thank you, our Savior. Amen. If you belong to Jesus,
This is your meal, so come and receive the body and blood of Christ for you.